There's nothing quite like food to bring people together. Favorite dishes, familiar or unfamiliar flavors, even just the satisfying sound of a sizzling pan. Food brings people together. Food strengthens communities and families and cultures. Today on Countless Journeys, you'll meet a man whose devotion to food is inspiring. Nanta Kumar has been a fixture on the Montreal food scene for decades, an innovator of trends like the pop-up restaurant. I, re I realized long ago that, you know, having a physical restaurant was not the way to go. It's like being a DJ, you know, you don't need your own bar. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to have a virtual restaurant. I'm going to go cook in different places for different people where I don't need to pay rent. And Salah Bashir arrived in Canada in 1965 when he was 10 years old, leaving behind political tensions in Lebanon. He went on to build a hugely successful media company, Cineplex Media. He's also become a leading philanthropist and an advocate for LGBTQ rights. There was always a sense of helping um, where you can, you know, helping someone have a better life. And I, it, it's kind of almost embedded in me that if you can help, you do. Countless Journeys producer Tina Pitaway will join me a bit later on to share his story. journeys. I was fresh, you know, and I was given the opportunity to, to do and learn whatever I wanted. My grandmother and my family were part of that working class population that people refer to as blue collar workers. I arrived here in December 46 and I will never ever regret it. <laughs> never. Whenever I think of blue collar worker, I think of my grandmother ironing her blue shirt to go to work. Nous sommes venus ici, le Canada nous a donné le meilleur. Alors, donnons au Canada le meilleur. At that time, it was Portuguese women coming to Canada, like my mother. We were coming here to build a better life, but also to help build Canada. J'ai vraiment réalisé la force de ce pays. We live in a country where you're beginning has really not much to do with your end. What you do in between is up to you. Welcome to Season 2 of Countless Journeys from the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21. My name is Paolo Pietro Paolo. I'm so excited to be with you to, to share these inspiring stories of immigration. My dad and his parents first touched Canadian soil at Pier 21 in 1959 after a week-long journey on the Queen Federica ocean liner from Naples. Like so many, they were escaping poverty and they found a better life in Canada. Pier 21 is an iconic spot for my family and for thousands of families across Canada and uh, it's a symbol of how immigration has changed Canada for the better. On season two of Countless Journeys, a celebration of Canadians from all walks of life whose drive and determination have helped shape Canadian society. You'll hear from business leaders, community organizers, leaders in arts and culture, and a whole lot more. And, and you'll hear amazing stories of resilience and perseverance and passion, like the story of Nanta Kumar. Nanta started out as a journalist in his home country, Malaysia. When he came to Canada, at first he continued as a journalist, but then his life took an unexpected left turn into cooking. In the early 90s, he introduced the flavors of Malaysian street food to Montreal, and he quickly became the talk of the trendy plateau neighborhood. 
After starting a couple of restaurants, Nanta decided some years ago that he preferred pop-ups and takeout and catering to owning his own restaurant. He was doing this long before anyone else had really adopted that approach, an approach that many restaurants have had to quickly pivot to during the pandemic. Nanta is also a huge supporter of the community kitchen concept. Nanta chatted with me from Montreal's Centrale Culinaire, a community kitchen where he cooks and teaches cooking classes. And it's really exciting to speak speak with you. Uh, I was reading all about you, and it, it's just marvelous to hear about how ahead of the curve you've been uh, in terms of, of your business. And I want to talk about that. But before we get to that, maybe we could talk about, about your childhood and, and, and where you grew up. Well, I grew up in Malaysia. I, I was born in a, in a rubber plantation uh, on peninsula Malaysia on the west coast, uh, really close to the Thai border. I grew up in a very multicultural, multilingual background. You know? mm. I, I, I speak Tamil. That's my maternal language. Uh, went to English schools. Uh, Malay is the national language. Grew up speaking Hokkien as a kid. Fortunately, I went to English schools. Mm-hmm. It was easy for me, you know, to 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 be immersed in the English language and come here and adapt easily, you know. What What are your earliest memories of of food? Uh, making fried rice—that's what you learn to do, and then you learn to make spice up uh, instant noodles. We used to have Maggie noodles. Oh yeah. Basically, it's kind of bland. So basically, you put stuff in the Maggie noodles, the instant noodles, to make it palatable and good. <laughs> so those are the first two things you learn as a kid. And what were you eating as a kid? What were you, what was your family? Oh uh, yeah, you know Indian food, so, uh, you know Tamil cuisine, like we do, like you know Indian stuff, dal, you know fish curry, chicken curry, lamb curry. That's it. It's uh, you know the basic Indian stuff. You know, like the stir fried vegetables are always the same: turmeric and chili powder and green chilies in it. Mm-hmm, Could yeah. be any chili with a little bit of coconut milk. And uh, some vegetables only came in when the dry season. Some vegetables came in the wet season. It was mainly a vegetarian diet, you know. That was our local seasonal kind of stuff, depending on what's growing when. As a child, you already had a, sort of a, an understanding of, of where food came from and, and how, it, how it came from. Oh, to yeah, table. yeah. We grew our own vegetables. I, mean, I grew up in a rubber plantation. My, fa- my grandfather was a gardener. So he grew stuff for us. So we ate basically stuff that we grew. We, ate, we had fruits vegetables from our own little garden you know and uh, you wonderful. know when you wanted something exotic you know you you bought it from from a shop people you mm-hmm. know sometimes they go fishing in the river they'll come and give you stuff you know like uh, a truck you know they exchange stuff you know like people often gift you stuff that they have in their garden so we had we had two tamarind trees uh, and that that tamarind tree would basically give tamarind to the entire village because huh. that was the only tamarind tree that even now when we go back to my village it's the only tamarind tree around so basically when you have a, an abundance of something you share you give it away you don't sell sure yeah that that's sort of a community approach yeah. to food and, and that was you know that's what people did yeah yeah that's uh, it sounds delicious sounds like a delicious yeah, yeah. childhood and also, you know you learn pickling you learn pickling and preserves immediately you know, mm. when you get, like, you know, when all the limes come, when all the mangoes are dropping off, what do you do? You start pickling them. You make achar, you know, you make uh, pickles. So did you, did you know then that you, that you had an interest in, in, in cooking? Or, or no, the, not really. No, yeah. no. It wasn't until I actually came to Montreal that I actually started cooking again, you know. Mm. And so when did you come to Canada? I came to Canada in, in 1982. 
I came to Canada because of Canada World Youth. I met uh, somebody, my ex-wife, she was a participant with Canada World Youth, and my best friend was in, in a group with, uh, with Lynn, my, ex, my ex-wife, and she decided that you know, she'd come and live with me, and then we both moved to Canada in 1982. Hmm. And what were your first impressions when you arrived? Well, you know, everything was very new and everything was very different. You know, I'm, I'm from a small town in, in Malaysia. And before that, I, you know, I grew up in a rubber plantation. So everything was kind of weird. You know, everything was very big for me, you know. I could have moved to the big city in Kuala Lumpur, but I was afraid of going to Kuala Lumpur because it was such a big city mm-hmm. for me. And then I come to Canada, I come to Montreal and realize like, whoa, this is a much bigger city than Kuala Lumpur, you know. I had no Not idea. anymore. I know. I had no idea how big it was, you know. But yeah, for me, yeah. you know, for me, it's still a big city, you know. Of course. So you arrive and and you're you're in this big city. How did you make plans about what to do in your new life in your new country? Oh, you know what? Everything was, you know, like for me, it was it was. Uh, I was fresh, you know. Yeah. And I was given the opportunity to, to do and learn whatever I wanted, you know. And Lynn basically said, "You can go to university if you want. You know, you just do what you want." And for me, my first, uh, my first, my priority was to learn French, mm-hmm. and that was my priority. And she said, "Yeah, you should do that." But my my biggest frustration was not understanding what people were talking about, mm-hmm. you know. And sure. so, so my priority was to learn learn French. So uh, I, I I signed up for a couple of Kofi classes, which is like a French French class for immigrants. And I did that like night classes, like five nights a week for like uh, maybe for a full year. And then I signed on to Dawson College and I went to, I started going to CGEP. And through that, I got a, a bursary to go study French as a second language in Shikurumi. Oh, wow. And uh, I went there for one summer, like for like about two months. And I came back speaking French. Uh, it Fantastic. really works. Yeah. You know, it's one of those, uh, those intensive immersion courses. They really work. You have to be away from Montreal. But nobody speaks English, and you know what? You come back speaking French. Language is what you know is how you get to know people and their culture. You know, for sure. So you arrive in Montreal, you 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 immerse yourself in in French culture and language. You get to know the city, and then you end up as a journalist. How did that happen? Well, the thing is, I I worked as a journalist in Malaysia before going before coming here. You know, it's interesting times working as a young journalist, you know, and decided to uh, I'll go to Concordia and I applied to the journalism and got accepted. And I got a, you know, I was, I worked, I was studying there full time. And during that time, I got hired by Quebec uh, immigration to work as a translator from Tamil to French. They had one translator who was translating from uh, Tamil to French, and they needed a second one because that was the, the heydays of uh, Sri Lankan uh, Tamil uh, immigration to Canada. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So while going to school uh, at Concordia Journalism at night, I was working full-time as a, as a, as a translator. Amazing. Yeah. So it was and, not and, easy, and <laughs> but did I have, did it. Did you have... Did you have kids at the time as well? Yes, yes, yes. I had two wow. kids, uh, two, two, two infants at that time. So wow. I managed to, managed to finish uh, Concordia Journalism. And uh, then I had to quit uh, immigration because I got my internship at the Globe and Mail so that summer in 1989. So I went to Toronto to work, uh, to, to do my stage 
to do my internship there. After that, I came back and, uh, and I was uh, hired by The Mirror to be the full-time journalist. You know, having my Quebec immigration background, I was able to do stuff about refugees, about immigration mm-hmm. policy. Sure. And I started immersing myself in the cultural communities. And back then, there was a lot of shootings by police. Yeah, and uh, so you know, I basically took over the you know race relations stuff, and uh, I kind of specialized in that for a while. So that was what I was writing about, and uh, and after that, uh, our magazine started, and they were looking for somebody who wanted to jump ship from the mirror to our, and I was the perfect candidate, you know. Mm-hmm. So I started writing for our magazine. They gave me a column called the Refugee of the Week, and I also got to do the restaurant reviews, which was great. Wow. So I got to write about you know about food and refugees. You had a whole career, a whole journalism career, and it sounds like a, a very strong one. So while I, yeah yeah, so it was that that is basically like my, you know that's what I did for most of my adult life in Montreal. You know, being a journalist, writing about race relations, about refugees, about immigration. And, uh, but, you know, I was always cooking on the side, cooking for friends, cooking for, you know, catering little gigs here and there, just for fun. But um, during one of my uh, restaurant reviews, I wrote about Elsa's, and that was how everything shifted. When I wrote about Elsa's bar, and then her chefs kind of quit on her, she asked me to come and do like a two nights, three nights at the bar. I said, no. I said, look, I've never cooked in a restaurant. She said, no, no, no it's fine. Just come and cook your couple of dishes. I said, no, no. I resisted for about two weeks. And then she eventually, she, one of the nights I was there, she gave me $300. She said, look, tomorrow you're going to go to Chinatown and buy some uh-huh. groceries, come back and cook. You're going to cook. You know, what do you, what do you like? What are you good at cooking? I said, I, I like to make chocolate. Yeah. She said, oh, yeah, you're going to make your, that noodle dish and then make two curries. And that's what I did. Mm-hmm. So it started out like that. I just took her $300, bought some groceries, cooked. I didn't have a menu, didn't have a, uh, nothing. I just cooked. And basically, my friends who were journalists who were hanging out at the bar ate my food for the first few weeks. And then Ashok Chandwani wrote about it for the Gazette. The late Ashok Chandwani wrote that. Mm-hmm. Journalist is cooking at Alsace, and then you know what? The rest is history. I was getting right up uh, in, in La Presse and the Journal de Montréal, and then before you knew it, my whole career changed. So I started cooking for Alsace uh, on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, three nights a week for like about three months, and it became four nights a week. And then after that, I moved on to Saint Laurent, and I started cooking at the Copacabana, and then it just blew up. It just like I was cooking five days a week. I was doing you know, two columns for the Hour magazine, the, wow. doing Refugee of the Week and doing the restaurant reviews. And on top of that, I still had to write some news articles. And, it, you know, after about two years, it just became too much. So I slowly started cutting down the articles I was writing and then just devoted my son eventually to just full-time cooking. And then you had a restaurant and then you, had, and then you decided to, to close it and, and do this thing. Yes, exactly. Like, I, I realized long ago that you know having a physical restaurant was not the way to go you know it's like it's like being a dj you know you don't need your own bar you don't need your own studio to 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 do this so i decided you know what i'm going to have a virtual restaurant i'm going to go cook in different places for different people where i don't need to pay rent and and i started that way 
way ahead of time. Like I had pop-ups, I had pop-ups in Vancouver like 25 years ago, even before it was called a pop-up. Uh -huh. You know, I was a guest chef, you know, in Vancouver. And wow. then I decided, you know what, I could do that. You know, I did that 25 years ago. I went and cooked for three days in a restaurant, someone else's restaurant. Yeah. I cooked my own food, you know, two, two different services, and I was able to fill up the place. Just word of mouth, putting up posters, getting, getting written up. Has anyone come to you during this pandemic for advice because of your experience? Yes. Yeah, people have reached out to me. Yeah, you know, people are, you know, like who want to do like frozen food. And yeah, that's the way to go. You know, take away food. I mean, the whole, the whole co-working kitchen space, like the Santral Culinaire, you know, is there to help people do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, where two people can come, set up, make food for 30 people. And, and they can come pick it up or drop it off. And then, you know, then you don't have, then you can work on something else for the next five days. Because if you have to do that five days a week, then it's a full-time restaurant. Yes. You know, and here we allow people to come and, and you know, like, oh, I, I have a line of marmalade. I want to start a line of pickles or whatever, you know. So this is like a, what do you call it, like an incubator kind of place where yeah. you can actually start making stuff. But right now, we don't want to put anybody's life at risk, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so right now, you know, a, a period of reflection, cleaning up the place, you know, keeping it safe. And uh, when all this thing blows over, we'll slowly come back. Yeah, yeah. And I think that is, you know, I think that's a logical choice, you know. I do miss my contact with the people when we do the pop-ups here. We do it once a month. We get about 30 to 40 people to come in. Sit down, come and sit down. We serve them food. We have a great time. We have nice music. You know, we drink and we have a party. We dance. But, you know, we can't do that right now. I'm just glad that we're here and, you know, that we can be safe and, and, and we can continue to do a lot of things that a lot of people can't do in other countries. Yeah, we're lucky. We are so lucky, you know. Yeah. Like, seriously. Countless Journeys producer Tina Pitaway joins me now. Hey there, Tina. Hey, Paolo. It's great to be back in the saddle for season two. And what a neat guy Nantha is. It was just uh, such, he's got such an interesting backstory and it has me craving being back in restaurants with people and just sharing meals again. No kidding. I got hungry while I was speaking with him. He kind of made me hungry. <laughs> but also I was so taken with, you know, his, his enthusiasm. I was so taken with his energy and his ability to innovate and to pivot uh, long before pivoting it was the catchphrase that it has become today. Right. Um, and innovation is, is a theme uh, today on Countless Journeys. And you've got the story of another Canadian now who's really an innovator as well. I do. His name is Salah Bashir. And now he's pretty well known in Canada, in Canadian art circles. He's a longtime patron of the arts. And actually, currently, he's the chancellor of OCAD University in Toronto, which is the country's largest 
Art, Design, and Media University. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was interesting listening to Nantha's story because both of these men, they have roots in journalism. And Sal is going to tell us a little bit more about that in a few moments, but uh, just a little bit more about his background. Salah Bashir, uh, he was at the forefront of the home video industry back in the early 80s, just when it was kicking off. So pivoting, <laughs> as, you, as we mentioned earlier. Yeah. And he developed partnerships with movie studios and theater chains with distribution and publishing deals. And he's the recipient of the Order of Canada, among many other accolades, both for his work as a businessman and also for his advocacy. And he's got legendary fundraising abilities. Um, He's done incredible work for causes close to his heart, particularly in areas of social justice, LGBTQ rights, and the arts. He sounds like an extraordinary guy, and I, I can't wait to get to know him better. Um, His family's from Lebanon, right? That's right. His father actually moved here first on his own. My dad came here in 1960, and my mom didn't want to come. Um, He came here um, to avoid what he foresaw would be a civil war in Lebanon, which did happen. In 1958, Americans had landed 10,000 Marines in Beirut, and he didn't think the situation was too stable and wanted us to come to Canada. So in 1965, Salah's mother, she agreed to make the move. Uh, She and Salah and his four brothers and sisters came to Canada, settling in the Rexdale neighborhood of Toronto. And he was raised with a real sense of community involvement. Taking care of others was actually a a big part of his family's values. There there was always a sense of of helping um, where you can, you know, helping someone have a better life. And I, I think there were hands extended to my family that, you know, to come to Canada and to help out here. And so we wouldn't be part of uh, impending war in Lebanon. And uh, it's kind of almost embedded in me that if you can help, you do. Um, I recall from days, even as a little child, like where, um, you know, communities would, you know, my grandmother would have a lot of people would be baking together and cooking together and making stuff together. And then we'd, we'd be sent off with packages to different families in the neighborhood and, you know, whether at Christmas or Easter or any other times. Ah, isn't that interesting? Uh, you know, it strikes me that food, again, is at the, the heart of, of communities and, and bringing communities together. But also it sounds like there is a real sense of, of being a part of something and contributing to a community and his family from a, a really early age, uh, which plays kind of into his his history as an activist, I guess. Yeah. So what were some of the earliest causes that he got behind? Well, one of his earliest protests that he was involved in was actually when he was 15 years old. 15? I know, that's, uh, you know, pretty young roots. He was uh, actually picketing outside of a Dominion grocery store of all places. This was in support of the United Farm Workers and in support particularly of labor leader Cesar Chavez. Now, that was also one of his uh, first fundraising efforts, actually, something he's been incredibly successful at in the decades since. And for that effort, uh, when he was 15, he raised a $150 for the cause, and he actually got to present it uh, in person to Chavez. And I was reading that that Chavez actually said that's $150 more than we had this morning. Good for him. Yeah, I mean, just those kind of moments when you're so young, they really, they can have a pretty long-lasting influence on you. Mm -hmm. So it clearly struck uh, a note with with Salah Bashir, and he went on to study uh, history and political science at the University of Waterloo. Now, this was, as I say, in the mid-1970s. I was a Marxist in university, and but my, my second year, I stayed at a Mennonite college 
in Waterloo, and I love the sense of community among the Mennonites, and I love the openness, and I love the idea that we could sit there almost like a like any table in the Middle East or Mediterranean without fighting with each other and over food discuss different ideas and different ways. Now, during that time, university campuses saw a real rise in student activism, and the University of Waterloo was no exception. Now, Sala was part of a group of students who actually occupied the offices of the student paper there as part of a broader political protest. We had occupied the student newspaper in Waterloo for nine months, and I had learned how to put a paper together and sold advertising and did um, a bunch of stuff. <laughs> Nine months. <laughs> well, I guess I guess that would have been his first foray into journalism, too. Yes, it was. And, you know, it served him well a couple of years later when his brother opened up what was one of Canada's first video rental stores. So I was running a community center in Toronto part-time and freelancing, writing articles, and including a couple for the Toronto Star. And he was being encouraged by different people to put out um, like a newsletter or magazine to get people more interested. And I said I could run it for him. And and I did it while running his store and freelancing. And that magazine became Videomania around 1980, 81. And then several people as the video industry took off told us that you don't want a consumer magazine, but a trade magazine would be better. So Salah launched a trade magazine, and then he and his brother worked with Universal to launch the home video end of their business, and partnered with Disney on that front as well. And a few years later, in 1999, he launched Famous Magazine, which was distributed in Famous Players Theatres. I remember that magazine. I would always grab a copy on the way into the cinema so there was something to read while waiting for the movie to start. It's neat to, to get to know about the guy behind that magazine yeah. um, and to hear also how about how involved he was in the movie and the video industries. He was, and that success eventually led to a business partnership with entertainment giant Viacom, and that resulted in Salah becoming president of Famous Players Media. He ended up becoming a 49% owner. Huh. Now, Famous Players eventually morphed into Cineplex Media, which Salah still leads, and under Salah's direction, movie theater advertising underwent this huge shift, both creatively as well as in terms of profitability. In some ways, the, uh, I got into the video industry by accident, in, from journalism by accident even, and I've always loved film. I've always, um, so it, it was almost, what's that line, you put somebody in water and they realize they'd love to swim kind of thing. And any exposure to the arts, I'd, I thought the arts were the most freeing of things. Hmm. And so what was the reaction within Salah's family to, to his growing success? Well, he tells this really terrific story, actually, about getting a very lucrative offer that would have meant moving to California. I think I was 33 at the time. We got a huge offer from Los An- in Los Angeles. And we'd have family dinners on Sundays. And I told my brothers, I hadn't told my sister or anything like that about it, and Mentioned it briefly to my dad. Everybody was very proud about it and the whole bit. My mom was most one of the most generous, kindest people you've ever met. And um, my mom, you know, served dinner and sat down. And she was very quiet throughout the whole thing. And this was huge. Like, it was a huge career. And it's one of the major studios and everything. And she, <laughs> she looked up at me and said, we did not all leave our family our friends, 
you know, learn a new language and do everything so any of you could leave, where, you know, leave home. Like in your heart, it's like, what? <laughs> so in a way, there, there was such a passion and love for Canada that none of the kids actually even left Toronto. And for a period of time, four out of the five kids and my mom lived in the same building. And so the opportunities were amazing. There, I, there is not enough I can say about Canada. Hmm, what a choice. And uh, also, I mean, it turns out he, he didn't really need California, did he? He, he, he? he was just as successful up here. <laughs> and he got to be near his family, too. Yeah. So that's kind of great. Exactly. Yeah, you mentioned that, that Salah has been a longtime fundraiser and uh, advocate for the LGBTQ community. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Sure. Now, Salah's own story about coming out to his family is really wonderful. It's a, a, a real contrast to many of the stories that we hear about people being rejected when they come out to their families? I, I had a very young age. I think I had a, probably when I was six or seven. I knew I, I was different, but, uh, that I was gay. I, I know from a lot of people that uh, I had a different experience. Coming out to my parents was a non-event. Um, uh, as a friend once said to me, it's like almost my parents said to me, yeah, we knew you were gay. When did you find out? And my mom said to me, all I want for you is to have someone who brings you, you know, half the joy and love that you brought us in your life. And it, it was even family when, you know, my husband Jacob and I go back, we're in a small village and you don't think of, you know, Lebanon as being open, but all of my relatives and friends and even on phone calls today, we'll ask, how is Jacob? How, how are things? And, um, and over the years, it's been totally open. And there's a lot of different um, gay and lesbian organizations that we support in the Middle East. Over the years, Salah has helped to raise tens of millions of dollars for a real variety of causes. Now, many are in the arts as well as healthcare, And one of the organizations that he's been really involved with is the 519 Community Centre. The 519 works towards advancing LGBTQ equality and inclusion in Toronto. All right, that's over on, on Church Street in Toronto. It is. It's a, It's pretty. It's kind of a hallmark building because it's older and uh, there's a lot of community groups that work out of there as well as artists. And the 519 in particular runs dozens of support programs. And one is the LGBTQ Refugee Support Group, which provides access to counselors for newcomers who may be struggling with coming out. Mm. Now, Sal has shared with me a story about being approached one night when he was headed out to dinner with his husband, Jacob. One time we're going for dinner and this young uh, East Indian, I don't know what the uh, man approached me and said, I need to talk to you about the 519. He was kind of emotional, I thought. He said, when I came out to my parents, um, we went to a counselor at the 519 and my grandmother came along. And the counselor came, turned out to be from the village next door to our village in India. And so him and my grandmother knew same people. He spoke to her in her native language. We talked about, and before I could get to any of my issues, my grandmother said, we're in a different country and this is a different times. And, you know, we love you and let's go. I mean, I still cry telling that story, actually. Hmm. You can really hear how much he cares and sense his commitment 
to his ideals, which are wonderful ideals, and his community. Uh, Tina, thank you so much for bringing us Salah's story. My pleasure. Thanks, Paolo. This year, the Canadian Museum of Immigration is launching a new exhibit. Uh, The exhibit features an immersive film. This film is uh, a 10-minute experience about contributions. Uh, And it's the, uh, specifically the contributions of generations of immigrants and how they shape Canada. Tanya Bouchard is the Vice President of Exhibitions, Research and Collections at the museum. So when they walk into this new zone, they'll see uh, an open space with a very large uh, curb screen that's about 180 degrees and kind of wraps around you. And on that screen, which is uh, nine feet tall, um, you will see uh, images and clips and a lot of animation bringing it all together. What an immersive experience, you really want to feel like you're part of it, like you're in the middle of it, and um, the, just the sheer size of the screen surrounding you, and uh, many uh, images and clips and uh, soundscapes, uh, it really feels like you're really connected in the middle of the content. And it's a celebration of many of the themes and people you'll be hearing about this season on Countless Journeys. We're looking at the theme of contributions of immigrants to Canada. And uh, one of the first themes we explore is family. And we felt that family is a key theme because many people can connect. And um, on that theme of family, um, you know, we we look at how uh, families make significant contributions to Canadian society, both economically and socially, um, through really through images and moments. Also, their leadership and courage and strength has paved the way to create opportunities for others. So uh, learning about their contributions can also inspire other people. And we look at uh, six themes, including family. Uh, The uh, other themes are um, sense of place, which is uh, looking at creating a home, establishing yourself in a community, creating belonging. Um, We also look at economy and labor, ideas and innovation, culture and sports. Um, And all for for these, uh, we we want to make sure we highlighted different types of contributions, different types of success and contribution through time and different fields. Tanya Bouchard is the Vice President of Exhibitions, Research and Collections at the Canadian Museum of Immigration. My name is Paolo Pietro Paolo. Thank you to today's guests, and thanks to you for joining me for this edition of Countless Journeys. This episode of Countless Journeys was produced by Tina Pitaway with Phil Moscovich and mixed by Natasha Aziz for the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21. To learn more about the museum, visit pier21.ca. And if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to like, follow, and share.